This is Pastor Mike from Jordan Lutheran Church, and you're about to hear one of our Sunday morning messages. At Jordan, we're passionate about learning from the Bible and pray that this message makes an impact in your life. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. That's verse 11 of chapter 1 in Nehemiah. So turn there, chapter 1, Nehemiah, uh, verse 11. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. It's the opening chapter in Nehemiah 1, verse 11. And it happens in the year 445 B.C. Nearly 100 years have passed since Cyrus I of Persia said you can go from Jerusalem and you can, make, you can go from uh, Babylon and make your way back to Jerusalem to rebuild and now, only 100 years, 445 B.C., now I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, a couple of you know this, but we need to unpack a little more what in the world a cupbearer is. Because to many people, you think, like, that's the person who brings out your cup to you at dinner. Here is your Coke. Here is your coffee. Would you like cream? I'm just bearing a cup, which is weird. We thought we just called them what? A waiter or a waitress. Like, this is just, that's what we thought we called them. No, a cupbearer is a different role. Uh, and it's actually a whole lot more important. Because at first glance, again, it just looks like you're butlering food. But the cupbearer is actually the person who is right next to the king at all times. Because they have the not fun task of drinking everything that the king will drink. Which seems pretty cool at first, right? You're like, all right, I'm thinking some wines of different varieties, wonderful juices and different things and poisons. Yeah, I know. See, a couple of you already made the move there. The cupbearer was there, so if anyone was trying to kill a king, if you could sneak food in, the cupbearer would die first. So the king always looked to the cupbearer. Hmm. Still alive. Excellent wine. Great choice. I mean, it, it seems funny to us today. It's not funny at all at that point. It is one of the most trusted people. I mean, literally, your right hand, left hand, wherever you want to put your cup kind of person, you'd have them set there. This is Nehemiah. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. As we read our opening reading, we heard a prayer. Nehemiah hears the people have wandered. They're not listening to God's word anymore. They've rebuilt the temple. The temple's rebuilt in 516, which is, again, about 60 to 70 years before this text. So they've got a temple in Jerusalem, but they still aren't following what God's doing. Now, what's intriguing is chapter 2. So if you were to look into chapter 2, and, and, and I'm not going to uh, read specifically from it, just turn there if you're kind of glancing. In chapter 2, Artaxerxes notices that there's sadness on Nehemiah's face. Now, I don't know if as some of you read this or were looking at highlighted text that this caught anything to you, but there's sadness on Nehemiah's face, and it's powerful that the king asks why he has a downtrodden face. Because if you're the number two guy, and by number two, I'm not saying like vice king, number two, like I trust you with my life, or at least I trust your life to die before mine. Maybe you could look at it that way. Uh, but certainly someone who's trusted, all you have to do is lie and not drink it, and they hand it off, and the king's dead. But with a downtrodden face, here's the move that you would normally think. It would not have been wrong for King Artaxerxes to immediately have killed Nehemiah. The fact that he's got a downtrodden face, he looks saddened and he's worried, you would think if you're king, he might be plotting. But he actually asks and takes time to go, why are you sad? 
This is not a normal thing for a king to do, to ask that question. And then as we get to the text, we start realizing because Nehemiah is worried about who? This city of Jerusalem that now decades have passed since the temple was rebuilt and the people are still kind of set there. Here we are, Nehemiah 1, verse 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. This is the prayer. So this was Nehemiah's prayer. So we're stepping into the prayer, but so we can understand more why the king's asking this question in Nehemiah 2. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, speaking of Israel, if they return, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcasts, are in the outermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. The prayer is, hey God, if we wander and we go out, would you draw us back if we return to you? Nehemiah is praying because he heard the people haven't returned. That's why he's sad before Nehemiah. And then he asks for something even more crazy. So the cupbearer, who now has shown his sad face that could seem he's setting a plot, you ready for what he asks? Hey, king, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go back to this city that's really far away in your kingdom, and I want to fortify it. And I want it to be just for my people, and we want to build up really big walls. Siege walls, if you will. We'd like to build those. Anyone following how crazy this is? You don't ask ruling kings to rebuild broken walls in a city distant from the capital of Persia, on actually some of the extreme of the kingdom so that you could rebuild siege walls so that that place could be protected. It is a recipe for the king to say, yeah, yeah, funny thing. Hey, about your position, uh, you aren't employed or breathing in 30 minutes. All right, guys, bring them in. That's not what happens, but it should be. And when you read Nehemiah 1 and 2, you don't get that because you don't live in a cupbearer world. We don't have cupbearers anymore. Hopefully you also don't get poisoned anymore when you eat dinners. But again, as we step into the text, we see that God has promised Nehemiah that he's going to be a guide. Here's verse uh, 10 and 11. So in its entirety, you can hear this cupbearer text. They are your servants and your people. This is his prayer. He's speaking to God saying, this people, these Israelites, these people who are going up to Jerusalem, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah says these words. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to feel your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah realizes any prayer that he asks of God, God, you've got to fill this. You've got to bring it to life. You've got to make this come forward. And then as this note, now I was cupbearer to the king. And that kind of leads you into chapter 2. Remember, the chapters and verses are added uh, centuries after the text is written. Nehemiah does not write and go, thus ends chapter 1. He doesn't. He actually writes this as a, as a continual text. They were written to help people like you and I do what? Turn to chapter 2. I mean, it, this is what we've grown up with. You've always thought that's there. It wasn't there. So he writes, now I was cupbearer to the king, and it takes you right into chapter 2, this depiction of a king who notices a downtrodden face and cares. You know when a boss cares. It's weird. It's odd, almost. Some of you may have been blessed with always having bosses who notice those things. Others have bosses who notice nothing, except when you haven't done a task or turned in something late or did something wrong. 
Now, this is the king who's noticing his cupbearer is just a little bit troubled. But Nehemiah is willing to speak to this earthly ruler because he realizes God has done immeasurably more for him. He's already spoken on Nehemiah's behalf. Nehemiah knows that he'll be safe. Nehemiah knows that he can give up even his own life because in talking with a downtrodden face, he's showing his hand. He just became human. He kind of stepped out of this like professional role. I am Nehemiah, cupbearer, here's your cup, and became accessible. He became, what's the word we'd use? Vulnerable. People do not like being vulnerable. We just don't. We might do it for a little bit, but we guard ourselves. Because when you're vulnerable, someone has the ability to do what to you? Yeah. They push you right off that cliff. They, they, then they know your buttons. And the moment you give them what your button is, they have access to it when? Yeah, all the time. Boop. They know what it is. They know how to get to you. So here is what happens as we go to our, our second lesson from Philippi. I want you to consider this. When Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he's aware of this, I'd give up anything for the Lord. He writes this, Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. This is St. Paul writing that Jesus. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is willing to give up his life because this question that he's asking on behalf of Israel as it's returning to Jerusalem that they could rebuild is worth it. It's worth giving up that position that he has. It's worth letting it all go. Can you imagine actually doing something where you could lose your entire job and you don't know what's going to happen? Some of you have done that. Some of you go, yeah, I lost it. Others of you go, yeah, I kept it. Those are tough days. They're not easy. Talk about a case of the Mondays. Brutal. It's brutal to not know what's going to happen. But Nehemiah doesn't go in in fear. He goes in in fear of if he doesn't honor what God has asked of him. He needs to know what's going on. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, though, lead forward that he does rebuild the wall. The temple is rebuilt. And for some of you, you're like, Nehemiah, that's the book where we rebuild the wall. Yay! Did you know the story's not really about rebuilding the wall, though? That's what we, that's the coloring page view of it, which is fine. But the description at the bottom would say something much more like this. The actual story is that the people give of themselves for their God. They rebuild the wall. They give of their time. They give of their safety. Nehemiah certainly questions the king, but all the people that rebuild, for those of you who read the text, they are rebuilding the wall with a sword on their hip. Like, I'm scared to climb a ladder and paint sometimes on my house. But I'm not, like, afraid that my neighbor is going to kill me when I'm on the ladder. I'm afraid the wind might blow, but I'm not sitting there like, paintbrush, sword, all right. I'm not. That's what they're doing, rebuilding the wall. And God sees it through. God sees through what's happening. The actual story is they give to their God because their God has already given them everything. Their God already restored them. Their God already brought them back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah recognizes that God's standing guard for all of these people at all times. Chapter 4, And I said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we're separated on the wall far from one another. Remember, we got them at the, at the ready. They're separated. <laughs> In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. So here you are on your ladder with your paintbrush and your sword, and the trumpet blows. 
And then you should get down your paintbrush, climb down the ladder, and all go to one place. And this is where it gets really cool. Now God fights for you. You see, God is the mover. It's not the people building the wall. You can get wrapped up in Nehemiah and think it's about Nehemiah's wall. It's not. Also, it wasn't about Zerubbabel's temple. It was about God moving a people who had been pushed away, drawing them back and saying, I will let this happen because I'm in control. As we've read from Genesis now all the way up to Nehemiah, the Lord does the fighting. You have attached names to these fights and you've forgotten that God was behind them all. So who takes 300 men and defeats an army? Yeah, see, I'm just letting it sit there a little bit. You're right. Gideon's the name. God's the mover. Who is it that drops the walls at Jericho? Oh, come on. It's the trumpet players. You've got to give me something. It's God. So who is it that parts the Red Sea? Wrong again. Charlton Heston. You guys need to know this. You need to know this. But, but we get these pictures of what? That it was Moses. And we talk about Mo- Moses. I assure you, Moses has no ability to part the Red Sea. None. Like his mom wasn't like, oh, this guy's going to part waters. <laughs> it's terrible the things going on. You guys remember Gary Larson from The Far Side? <laughs> he had a comic as a kid, and it, was, it said, Moses is a baby. And he was sitting there, it was like a fish tank, and Moses goes, and, it, and the fish tank had just kind of divided. Sorry. Uh, the <laughs> pastoral wanderings. <laughs> like, post-postscript. It was still God. I mean, it, but just, we, we, we detract from what God's doing, though, when we just make it about those names. Moses, no, he didn't. He was present. And in that, we should remember that Moses honored God, and that's what let that happen. Because uh, Gideon, we recall from Judges, was actually what? And this is not what we normally remember him as, a coward. He kept saying, not enough people, not enough people, I need more people, a coward. And then God goes, Gideon, come on, I got you. And then Gideon left the fight going, wow, God had me. Turns out he had all of this figured out. He had it all prepared. So what's the promise that God's trying to get the people to know? Jericho, the Red Sea, walls falling down, armies collapsing, walls being rebuilt, temples being rebuilt. What's the promise? Namely, that God has all people in his care, under his wing. Remember Jesus' cry to Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who persecute the prophets, how often I have wanted to draw you under my wing like a hen draws under its chicks. I want to take care of you. Let me do it. Imagine how frustrating that is to God. I'm here to do everything for you. You just have to, you just have to let me. But we're real, real good at not letting God do his work. Imagine any young child who wants to tell you a story and then you try to like, interrupt on their story. Do kids like it when a parent wants to stop them talking? No, that's like how we are to God. I have to really, I really want to tell you what I did last week. I really have to tell you it's great. You wouldn't understand what's going on. My teacher said all these things and greatness. And you're sitting there. I have no idea what you're saying. 
and we're trying to get in the car to go to that fun thing you wanted to do, and you keep wanting to, let's go in the car. But you know what God does that's even more astounding? He's patient. He's patient with you. (laughs) And sometimes you think that you're the one that has to exhibit all the patience. For millennia after millennia after millennia, God stuck with us as his creation, refused to let us go. The people, as Nehemiah moves forward and the walls are rebuilt, celebrate what's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Any of you ever actually seen someone celebrating the Feast of Booths? Yeah, it's really cool. Really cool. Uh, so there I was in, in suburban Baltimore in a townhome community uh, with uh, Friends of my parents, I get to, my friends as well, Jack and Hillary are great people, uh, and, and Hillary just had her booth set up on the back. So there's like a townhome, and there's a booth just sitting on the back that she had made up. And I'm like, Miss Hillary, what is this? And she goes, this is the Feast of Booths. We are honoring God and his protection and care for us. And we do this. This is something we do every year. And I was like, this is cool. We don't do stuff like this. And I'm with you. We should. Because it reminds us of what God actually did. Do you know why God actually had all those feasts and festivals for the people of Israel? So they wouldn't... Oh, I used to remember it. Oh, forget. That's it. Yeah, thanks. I know. Only a few of you thought that one was funny. Come on. <laughs> Gary Larson gets laughs. Forgetting does not. Maybe that's why he was the comic and, and I'm the pastor. Uh, but as we move forward, we move to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8 takes us to that picture of them celebrating... And looking to that Feast of Booths, hearing the word of God again. Because in the Feast of Booths, they hear the word, God's promises. And all the assembly of those who had returned from that captivity made booths and lived in them. This is the Feast of Booths. She just kind of had the booths set on the back of her townhome. Uh, to my knowledge, Miss Hillary did not actually live outside. She may have one night. I, I don't. At the age of nine, I was inquisitive, but not that much. Uh, I was like, wow, this is really weird. You have this booth on the back of your deck and none of your neighbors do. That's kind of eccentric. Uh, But it was neat. It gave her a chance to talk about her God who has an eccentric love that would never stop loving his people. And I heard that. And you know what's also interesting? Here I am decades later and I have not forgotten it. It says something. The things that we do that say, well, it's just rote, you know. Rote has a way of being remembered. How many of you grow up and you had to memorize lots of things in school? I mean, lots of stuff. How many of you have songs in your head that your teachers taught you that you have no idea why they're still there? Now, how many of you in those songs that are still there, you actually still sing those songs when you need to remember what it is that that song told you? Yeah. I mean, I'm a pastor who can't remember the books of the Bible without a song. Like, I know them, but like the songs in my head, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, I have to sing the song. It's hilarious. I mean, I know what they are. I'm like, oh, sing the song. Like, here we are. But God is teaching people these things. All the assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, Joshua, son of Nun. This is Joshua who will carry them into the promised land. To that day, the people of Israel had not done so. You catch this? Anyone remember how long a period this is? I'll put it to you this way. It's got a one with three zeros after it. Oh, a couple of you are with me now, yeah. Because they come in in about 1400 B.C., as we said here in Nehemiah, it's about 445. So, okay, maybe it's like 950 years. Some of you want to split hairs. It's been hundreds of years. They have not done this. They forgot. God didn't forget them, though. 
And there was a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. You ever have an aha moment in church? God's doing aha moments in Nehemiah 8 for all his people. Because they're hearing again for the first time that God loves them. They're hearing again for the first time that God refused to give up on them even when they were in open rebellion. Even when they had forgotten everything, God's still there with them. Because the people forgot to read the Bible. The Word of God. They forgot. Saying you read the Bible and reading the Bible are two different things. You guys know that now. You've lived enough years, right? Saying you read the Bible and reading it, two completely different things. Saying you eat well and actually eating well are also two completely different things. Saying you exercise, I'm sorry, and exercising are two completely different things. Nehemiah 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. Welcome to Lent. There they are, ash on them, sitting there in sackcloth, mourning. Why? Because they had just been hearing the law of the Lord. The Lord had been speaking to them, reminding them of who they were to be. That God was setting them apart, that they were to be a holy people. Leviticus 19.2, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. They were asked to be something unique. Now, the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. No, it does not make a nice hat. No, this is not a mud compress. This is humbling. I put dirt on me because there's nothing good in me at this hour. Lord, I know that I am dust, and to dust I shall return. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. It's one thing to say, I'm a problem. It's not easy to say that my dad's a problem or that my grandfather's a problem. To which some of you are like, oh no, I do that all the time. Well, that's a whole other problem. We'll deal with that another Sunday. But it's just not. To actually speak ill of your family, it's much easier to speak ill of who? foreigners, the other people, the outcasts, the ones that aren't in my family. And here you have Israel saying, it's a problem that starts with me and it's run through my family for generations. And Lord, I need you. Israel separates themselves from the foreigners, stood, confessed their sins and iniquities of the father, and they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God violating all rules of the length of a Lutheran church service. All rules broken. Which is funny when people say that it has to look a certain way, right? Worship has to be a certain way. Well, according to Nehemiah 9, we are not doing church long enough. And I say that to share with you because why? Because God's calling you back. And they're excited. You've probably had a few moments in your life where you actually were in church longer or gathered in a Bible study and it ran over and it was like an hour longer and you actually, when it wrapped up, you did what? You smile. Because you have no idea that the time had passed. You just enjoyed the fellowship, the worship, and the company of being around God and his people. The text does not record, and the assembly grumbled for the length of the service. 
No, they were grateful for a God who refused to give up on them. They were grateful for a God who refused to let go. You see, that's what 2019 is for us. We are reading the Scriptures in their entirety so that you would be reshaped, so that you wouldn't say, well, sometimes we forget a book, or, Pastor, why do you select this reading? We're reading it all to say, I didn't select a reading, I let God select it. And he said, there's 66 books, so let's go at it. If we're a church that celebrated 10 years of existence, we should probably make sure we've done what? Read the whole book. How many of you admit your pattern looks a little different in reading in the last three months? Just keep your hand up. Look around. This is awesome. People's patterns have changed. Church is not about just singing and smiling. It is about our lives changing because God changes them. And you know what he's doing? He's changing it as we read the Word, which is exactly what he told through Nehemiah, exactly what he did through the people. Again and again, God says, hear my word, let it do its thing. That's what happens for us in a few more moments as we gather at this table, where the Lord comes and says, here's my body and my blood, the living and active word breathed into you so that you can taste and see that the Lord is good. That seems pretty crazy and extreme, though. What do you mean taste and see the Lord's good? Well, because in his word, he told us that he had this meal that he offers first to the disciples in the upper room before he sacrificed himself, and he institutes for us this life-giving feast that for the rest of eternity, every time we gather, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and say, God's here for you now. So whether you're building a wall right now in your life (laughs) and you do feel like you got your sword on one hand and paintbrush in the other, God says to you, I'm with you. And I'll blow a trumpet and we'll assemble and I will fight for you, says the Lord. Or whether you're in the midst of a celebration and you're going, man, my wall's already been rebuilt and God is good. You know what God says to you? Taste and see the Lord is good. That you might remain where you are in the joyous place that God has provided for you. The Father has provided again. Amen. We're glad you've connected with us online and look forward to the opportunity to see you in person. On behalf of everyone at Jordan, We hope you will join us as we gather in worship of our Savior, Jesus Christ, every Sunday morning at 9.30 at Beaver Creek Cinemas in the peak of good living, Apex, North Carolina.